welcome to another edition of Top Lines and Tales and to our recent series where we are looking at the history of native breeds of livestock in the UK. This week we're once again sponsored by Harborough and grateful for that sponsorship. Having looked at some of the oldest breeds in the UK, we now take a look at possibly one of the newest cattle breeds developed on the island of Ling by the Cadzo brothers. It was a breed born out of necessity for a female animal to survive on those harsh western lands simply by crossing a beef shorthorn basically with a highland cow. And I have uh, on the podcast this week Ling breeder and current breed chairman of the Ling Society, uh, Neil McGowan. Welcome, Neil. Hello, Andy. Hi. And Neil, you're a busy man. I know involved in a lot of breeds and projects, but your family have been involved. They have a history within this breed going back a long way. Yeah, I, Dad was, he was at the first sale back in 1966, just for a look. And he'd, he'd sort of developed an interest in kind of range-type cattle by that stage, travelling the world, delivering bulls, really. And, that- and uh, my mum's father, James Bigger, that was at Chapleton, mm-hmm. uh, he would be involved quite early on, along with his old crony Frank Young at Kingith. Okay. Um, uh, they would be uh, part of the original group of uh, cattlemen that were uh, involved in getting the breed officially recognised. Okay, and that's interesting because on this podcast, talking about these history of native breeds, the name bigger turns up again and again and again with the traditional breeds along the, the Galloways and the Herefords and, and many others. So that's interesting to know that uh, that his... Uh, expertise was one of the driving forces behind that, and I also believe the uh, and I also believe that uh, um, Shane Cadzo, one of the original family of the breed, is about to be made uh, vice president. So it looks like the the whole breed has gone full circle. Uh, yes, I, the the Cadzo family are still very much involved on the island of Ling. Staying with the breed for all that time is uh, is is quite a feather in their cap. Indeed, indeed. Let's have a look at that family in a little bit more detail. And the original brothers were Shane, who was the oldest, uh, born in 1913, and then Dennis and Ralph. And they all farmed on mainland Scotland in their own right, mainly in the east, I think, uh, uh, down in East Lothian there. And they were all into fattening cattle at that time. And they'd buy a lot of store cattle out of Ireland, as a lot of people would do back then. And uh, out of frustration of giving most of the profit to, and I quote, Paddy the dealer, (laughs) who sounds a character who supplied their cattle out of Ireland, the boys collectively dreamt about buying a hill farm on the West West Highlands, somewhere, somewhere they could breed their own cattle and then also ship their feed up from the east. Um, a relatively simple plan, Neil, that still goes on today, breeding the cattle on the hill and then bringing them down to fatten if you can have the whole circle. And, and uh, But these boys got a little bit lucky, I think, when uh, when they bought an entire island that came up for sale off the coast near Oban, and uh, that would be the mid-40s, I think, and uh, a ballsy move to go and, go and buy an entire entire island. Yeah, I forty seven. I think they got they got half of it in forty seven, and uh, the rest uh, just a few years later. But you know, they were they were, they were pretty go ahead guys. Um, a, a cousin Brian Cadzo developed the Improver sheep, you know, and um, so it was uh, they were. Um, quite go ahead um, folk for their time anyway. They certainly were go-getters weren't they and just for our listener the Isle of Ling is uh, 15 miles southwest of Oban uh, just yeah, 300 yeah. metres across the Kewan Straits uh, which meant basically everything would have to go on and off the, the island by ferry and back then that wouldn't have been so easy and they'd need to book an entire boat in advance to, to ship the livestock. Logistics would have been absolute nightmare in the beginning I mean, it's an off-putting thing really. Yeah, it was an old steamer. It was it wasn't until nineteen fifty four that Ling got a car ferry, and uh, then it was it was actually later, still in the seventies, when the the Cadros got their own barge to to be able to take cattle 
to the outer islands themselves and um <laughs> that you know, they still shift stock about in that barge. Brilliant, brilliant to have your own barge and what a, um, a vision that conjures up. And the island itself is actually, th- I think, 3,800 um, acres and population of 180 people. And to start with, they bought 2,000 acres of it, I imagine, for very little money. And it was owned by the Marcus of Bredelbane, I think, at this point, who was quite a substantial Highland cattle breeder himself. So they- I think... Uh, there was somebody in between, but when Bradalbin had it, the, it, there was about 600 people on the island and, uh, you know, slate slate production was the, the main thing and, and farming and fishing as well. And um, um, he had a, he'd actually had a dairy with 80 to 90 cows on it and a buyer. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and it sold to a guy um, who was, at, I think, um, E.R. Hall was one of the Bentley boys and I think he'd, uh, he held the record for driving around Le Mans. All right. Uh, Driving uh, Lenormand, yeah. got enough money, going by an island. Yeah, why not? And yeah. <laughs> uh, it was him that sold the, the island to the, the Kansas. Okay, and and this island has up to a hundred inches of rainfall. Yes, for my American listeners, a hundred inches of rainfall and uh, pretty much solid slate, as you mentioned, under the subsoil and uh, barely fertile land. No trees, I don't think. Uh, it doesn't sound too appealing to, to a farmer to me. No, but it's sort of sea level, and uh, the rocks and hills are pretty good shelter. Okay. Um, there's some pretty good silage parks on it, and some very productive grassland, especially down towards the, the south end of the island. Uh-huh. And, you sound like you know it fairly well, and it it came, I believe, with a herd of mongrel cows originally, and some fairly meagre blacky sheep, I think. And uh, within the first year, this sounds a bit extraordinary, I think, but within the first year, the island experienced a massive drought, and 100 inches of rain and still getting a drought sense, big contradiction in terms, but I guess that thin soil can't stand the dry weather for too long there, and it uh, it wouldn't be a good start, would it? I guess not. It's, uh, a drought doesn't sound um, feasible. But. <laughs> no, no probable, but uh, anyway, they had one, and thankfully the one thing on the island came, uh, the island came with a cow buyer that could winter somewhere near 200 cows, and and it was up to the brothers then to work out what sort of cattle they wanted to fatten and what was required from the mothers that bred them. And basic requirements would be that a cow could uh, rear a calf every year, stand the weather, and be able to breed replacement heifers. And um, so, yeah, I don't think the buyer was used much. I think they kind of eliminated that early on. With that, I think it was um, thought to be harboring a bit of um, infection, and so the, the, the cattle were always very much asked out winter. Mm-hmm. Outside, uh huh, and and back home, these brothers had mainly been fattening shorthorn cross highland cross shorthorn um, steers, and uh, they'd got a suppliers of these in, in in throughout Scotland, I think. And in the early fifties, they sourced uh, fifty first cross shorthorn highland heifers, and then. Both of these breeds have been studied, of course, in detail on uh, on this podcast, and each have their individual merits. But I suppose the question to ask, or they will be asking, is: Would the whole be greater than the sum of its parts? And more to the point, what bull would they put back on these heifers? And uh, I believe it was an Angus was discussed and dismissed, and a Hereford likewise. And of course, there wouldn't be any Continentals back then. Before eventually, they uh, they settled on using the shorthorn as as the second cross, and also. Putting that short on buller back uh, back across some of those uh, those cows that they'd inherited. I think it's important to stress that these if these guys were yeah, they've been buying the steer calves for for long enough off a lot of these places, um, they knew where to go and find the heifer calves to, mm-hmm. to start them. They, they were getting them from pretty decent herds, and and back at that time, I think you know that from where we are sitting here in the Angus Glens to right across to the to the west, there would be 
the big glens full of Highland cows at that time. It'd be quite a different uh, animal to, to what we think of today. And that was that pretty much, I think, for a few years anyway, while they set about repairing the farm and the fences and the soil and modern methods, and as you mentioned, putting their grassland down for making silage meadows. And there's a wonderful paper that, uh, that, that uh, nearly finally furnished me with, which was written in 1974 by Dennis Gadzo after he won the coveted Massey Ferguson Award and uh, he quotes um, being an island community we found ourselves responsible for the bus service the meat milk and coal deliveries and a variety of other services none of which of course were profitable and I, I love that idea that when you go and buy the land there that basically you've got to take on the responsibility of looking after the inhabitants as well is regardless of, of, of the cost of it and it still happens I think uh, spoke to Shane this morning he says uh, he said oh, thank god we don't still have to run the bus but I think Tutti enjoys giving him a rubbing about his, uh, his, his bin man duties on the band. <laughs> Excellent. And um, and of course, they found an inherent problem um, with, I think, liver fluke in that wetland and other tick-borne diseases, which of course weren't so easy to deal with back then in the 50s. And all the modern treatments, of course, were being developed. And once the brothers got the land into shape, making hay and silage and improving areas where animals could be outwintered, uh, the farming business on Ling started to settle down a little bit. But the one thing that became apparent uh, was for animals to survive on that island, they really needed to be born and bred there. And, you know, there hangs the rub, really. And this would take on a problem of its own. You know, breeding replacements is an issue with all suckler herds, of course, and uh, unless you keep a separate herd of pure females somewhere else. You know, I think they, 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 they fell upon or, or designed that what Dennis described as a, a shortcut in the beef industry, you know, a self-replacing cow that produces a suitable finished product. Mm. And that's, you know, it's still what the ling is today. Yeah. Okay. Of course, that left left the course open for the Cadsos to try and, and fix a breed type that actually suited that island. And, and that is a, a second cross short on, cross highland cross short on, uh, um, and that's the ling was born. Would I be somewhere about right with the, with the quantities of short on? <laughs> Sounds about right, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. There's no blueprint exactly, but I mean, and, and the whole thing was very cleverly uh, orchestrated, as you said earlier on, and a short-on bull, Krugleston Alistair, was purchased from the great Bertie Marshall and uh, described to be as good an example of a short-on breed that you could get, both size and width, and uh, he was used across these second crosses, and that's sort of when the, when the job got going. Didn't it? He would be used across a lot of these first crosses, probably, mm-hmm. uh, to produce that... Uh, sort of three-quarter short horn. Um, and the, the, I think the Alistair Bull maybe had a bit of a white flash down his side, okay. um, which uh, still comes through in a few of the, the lings today, the, you know, the, the ling colour uh-huh. really okay. comes. You know, we've, we've got the, the most of the spectrum between the yellow of the highland uh, and right through to the white of the short horn. Uh-huh. And although most of them are... are pretty solid red but we still get that white flash coming through a wee bit mm-hmm. and um, that probably was what made that Alistair bull um, uh, available to to somebody with a, a more commercial uh, sure well Bertie would demand. breed a, breed a lot of bulls we've gone through his his merits on this podcast mm-hmm. in the past and uh, he would breed you know a, a huge amount of bulls and he'd have bulls to suit everybody and evidently this was the right bull to suit th- this commercial requirement and from then the second crosses a bull was selected to breed and his name was Ling Mist and uh, I, I think he's well named Mist because I imagine there'd be a little bit of those and he'd be out looking for him in the mist on the islands but uh, he he was mated to his sisters and uh quite a simple step really to fix the breeding type uh, by breeding it tight Neil 
Yeah, I, they were pretty tight to start off with there, but I think all along they had, uh, there was a chap, uh, Dr. Bob Church, uh, who's uh, is, is, uh, from Calgary, an, an Alberta man, uh, would be doing a postgrad in Edinburgh at the time in genetics, okay. and he took an interest in what they were doing, and he, he uh, was quite involved with developing the the system that how how to how to get the breed established and then how to how to keep the breeding working and uh, keep the genetic pool wide enough i guess um just to keep a herd running with uh, with a family system and um, we'll chat about the family system in a second but it's uh, it, it is i think an in, incredible feat and i think for people again on this podcast with some of these native breeds we've discussed how the early days bake well and and um and even going as late as bob adam how they line bred and inbred and line bred and inbred um you know the great um captain de quincey at the Verne, how they they bred these animals in on some kind of method but there was no rhyme or reason or anything written down and I think it, it, it looks like the Cadzos sort of put that together and actually did come up with a with a blueprint for for this family type of line breeding and just before we get to, to that there would be of course an issue back then that uh, bulls throughout the UK had to be licensed by the the government and it was illegal to breed I think from crossbred bulls I would be right and uh, at some stage, uh, I guess, MAF must have, uh, or DEFRA they are now, must have given them permission to override that rule to actually allow them to breed from a second cross bull. Yeah, I had to look back some of the um, stories uh, from Rafe, one of the, the, the younger brother, Rafe, um, spoke about uh, getting permission from MAF at the time to use bulls from the five family group. And he was quoted as finding the officials both helpful and enthusiastic in the project. So that must have become as a great boost. Anyway. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that would, we've, as we've discussed in, in the past with a, when the guys trying to get the Charolais cattle into the country, how unhelpful they were. So maybe they, uh, they pick the, pick the helpful ones or maybe the helpful um, math uh, hierarchy at, at that particular time. And, and I also talking about unhelpful, I believe that the, Cad, the Cadzos went to the, Highland Cattle Society and uh, to see if they would try and do a bit of grading up for the Highlands by adding some short horse blood into it to, to sort of improve the, the, the Highlands that would suit their area. But of course, that was uh, categorically thrown out of court. Um, uh, those traditionalists, uh, they, wouldn't wear, they wouldn't wear anything like that, would they, Neil? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. If, you know, I, I think if you went today with this plan, it's, uh, it's plenty radical. <laughs> <laughs> To come up with something, uh, something new and a, a self-contained breed, um, you know, running one herd is uh, it's, it's, it was quite a move. Indeed, and again, we've looked at some of these grading up schemes that had been put out. One, I remember Drew Adam telling me himself that uh, he proposed at the council one day to put to try and put the British Frisian back into the Angus to to try and improve it. So a lot of these, but the traditionalists would always be there that they didn't want the the dirty blood in their breeze and of course something that happened then two or three generations later and now they're, they're, they're complaining about it but we'll move on from that one because I do get phone calls and um, the uh, they kept another son of, of Cradleston Alistair Ling Oxo and from these two bulls I think they line bred families and, and uh, just about every Ling owes its ancestry back to those two bulls Neil that'd be what mid 50s I guess yeah, I, it's a simple enough system, but I think there's maybe only a handful of people that really understand it. Yeah, and can, can you, do you have, with your system nowadays, do you have pedigrees going right the way back to those bulls in the 50s? There will be, there's a, the Ling breed went computerised, there seems to be a little blip in, um, in the history, um, so it's hard just to follow them all the way back. Fair enough, but that's a shame. Bye. 
keeping um, 30% of the best heifers back every year and then moving one bull from family to family, the Kadzos suddenly, well, they find themselves with 400 head of cows really by their mid-60s and all peas in a pod and all fitting the criteria that these guys had set out to, to suit that island 10 or 12 years earlier. And they wanted mobility and longevity and hardiness, milkiness, all the things we still look for in, in a hill cow, in any cow for that matter to this day, but uh, but still to be able to breed carcass beasts that were good enough to go into their fattening yards. And that's quite incredible, really, from, from where they started. Well, yeah, you know, finishing their own calves is what they were they were on about. So, um, and I'm going to quote from this paper that I mentioned earlier on because I think it's a blueprint for line breeding, and it's, and I quote the the family system works like this. And remember, the cows stay in their own families for life. Each year in May and June, one of the senior bulls is used to serve half the cows in that family, and the other half is covered by yearling bulls out of that family. And, to avoid inbreeding, the male lines covering certain families are changed every four years. Sounds pretty simple to me. Yeah, simple enough. I only know a handful of people that really understand how it does work. But the system seems to keep throwing up bulls that are unrelated to everything else. And um, I think it's a fantastic resource for the for the whole breed. Sure. That anytime you look in the 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 the, the, the Cadzo bull pen, there's there's always something that's come up from something that's totally unrelated to anything you've used before incredible um, and i said it was simple but because something simple doesn't mean it isn't difficult and these guys did to they did manage to discover something and then and then keep it running in in an actual formula i think that bob church would be quite involved with uh, with getting that uh, that system pulled together and uh, he you know his story himself's worth a podcast is that okay he ended up with a, a herd of lings in, in Alberta and okay. um, was, um, was very much involved in the cattle business across there as well as starting up uh, all the genetics across there and, and um, a lot of um, hospital work as well with cat, with people. Okay. So. And uh, we'll, we'll maybe go on to the overseas exports in a minute because certainly Canada is a place they seem to be well suited to. But going back, to, uh, and, and by the 60s, for the demand for the link cow started to grow, I suppose, as feed conversion and, and carcass results spoke for themselves. And there's people starting to, to, to want these these calves across across the country. But back then in the 60s, the ling still wasn't recognized as a breed and they were unable to sell bulls by law because they weren't uh, it wasn't a recognized breed and again of course because you know, they were a crossbreds or a composite as we'd probably call them today and that becomes a bit of a conundrum Neil doesn't it and I think they ran a massive on-farm demonstration showcasing this 400 cow herd back in in I think 65 or 6 and followed by Ling beef for dinner and, and it seems everybody went across to that and it was an extreme success I think. Yeah, they were getting on fine themselves, finishing their own calves, but I, th- I think they thought they had something that they could really make a go of. And and that was the, the next hurdle was being able to sell bulls and, and expand the breed from what they were allowed to do themselves mm-hmm. at that time. So that demonstration at 200, I think they were all invited guests, was to kickstart an act of parliament to uh, get the Ling breed um, officially recognised. Okay. That was a start. It was a start. The finish. I think Dad uh, was uh, the, the only story I can really that I've heard from from that open day was uh, was by the end of the evening. Um, Shane Senior was um, climbing the tent pole with a coconut under his chin and uh, dropping it on the outside of the tent. Slid down the 
pole and got outside ready to catch the coconut before it hit the ground. And he was the only one that could do it. <laughs> a man of many talents and obviously such a, a character as, as the as the whole family surely were. And and as you said, eventually the, the, the breeders were that impressed that they did manage to swing the, the government and the breed got recognition. I think this was October 65 and the Breed Society was formed in July 1966. But however... Again, unusual, I would say, there were caveats that were included into that uh, that beginnings of, of the, the breed where the, there was to be no competitive showing of purebred cattle and no bulls to be sold under 20 months old. And I think that's interesting, especially the former of those statements where maybe they realised that the showing was often biased by good stockmen with big buckets and... Uh, My understanding that was that these two things was a, was a cadzo thing that was... Uh, to try and avoid the, the, the fads of the shoring and to keep the breed grounded very much. Keep the breed grounded and obviously selling bulls at 20 months old so they knew they were big enough and tested, I suppose. And then on that... I think you're, you know, the breed's probably 10 years on at that stage from, you know, at least from when it started. And, and the industry had moved on a bit. And sure. A lot of the competitive breeds were maybe struggling a little bit for size where the ling had, had held on to it a wee bit, mm-hmm. I think. And we move on. The first sale was at Oban in March 1966 with uh, bulls and heifers offered uh, very much in their natural uh, rather than sale condition. And six bulls averaged £735. You have a, a good start, I suppose. And, and Three of these bulls went into herds that are still going today. The, the McNeys at Ben-Har bought one, um, Bob and, and, and Roy, um, Andrew and Robert's grandfather and father mm-hmm. at the sale and John Cameron at Mini, who's been very involved with the breed all along and his son really runs Mini now mm-hmm. and uh, the third one's a bit of a stretch maybe it was uh, Francis Balfour at Dunanian. Okay, he bought the top price bull at the first sale and then my parents bought the farm from him lock, stock and barrel in 76 so uh, 10 years on from that so so and the cattle came with it yeah we'll we'll, we'll go on to your father's merits within the breed and and shortly and just taking through with his history it was decided that these bulls were going to be sold onto smaller dumpier cows that need to get them bigger and they went out and basically bought a measuring stick and i suppose there were a few breeds that were doing that just then trying to get their cattle back up to size after the, the belt buckle era of, of of the 50s and 60s but uh, they ran trials in their own fattening units I, I i think by over in the east by sending the bulls across there and then and then um selecting them for size and then bringing the biggest ones back as junior stock bulls and killing the rest as bull beef i would say is that is that about, about the size of it yeah, size was part of what they were looking at at the time. But uh, yeah, uh, Charlie Bell that ended up at Athol Estates was uh, was working at Dunker Hill for that time for Dennis. And okay. uh, his job at the, in the winter was to tie up a lot of these bull calves and uh, they would be fed a store ration over the winter and uh, they'd see how they would perform weight-wise, size-wise. But um, they were getting about 50 bulls back to, to whittle that down to maybe 25 to, to go on. Uh, before the final decision was was made on the on on the last cut, the, the Dennis would go back to the, the island and reappraise the mothers a second time. And uh, okay. I think that was probably the inspiration for the the, the Ling Dam classification scheme. That you've been involved in in testing and various other things again, which we'll come on to. But uh, it wasn't just their own bulls that they tested, but I think the society would measure every bull through through well through into the seventies. I think and uh, and they would be looking for increased weights 
I've got figures here, £484 to £509. They're 220 kilos, 230 kilos um, looking for in, in weaning weight. So they still, they wouldn't be massive. They wouldn't be big compared to the Continentals that were starting to kick in around about that time, would they? No, that's right. They were they were probably a step bigger than some of the alternatives. But, you know, just the t- as the timing happened, they were... Uh, they were trumped by the Continentals who came in and took the job three to four steps ahead. Sure. And, and the breed probably lost a bit of ground then. Sure. You know. And by 1973, the Breed Society had 200 members, 116 bulls being registered and 1,300 heifers uh, registered. And how does that compare with today's figures, just out of interest? Today, we're about 300 members in all. Um, 2,000 heifers registered last year and, uh, and about 300 bulls. Okay. I, th- I think if you if you look in the twenty years since foot and mouth, the breed's gone from twenty seven to one hundred and fifty herds registering active herds, and it's moved from three thousand to thirteen thousand females breeding females. Really? So, okay. Um, mm-hmm. you know, we've moved from the nineteen seventy figures up the way, but uh, there was a big slump in the middle. Sure. We'll look at some of the latter-day breeding, as I said, in a minute or two. And Cadzo finishes this wonderful paper by saying that the Ling breed leans 60% towards the breeding female. And that's unlike other breeds. I suppose the whole ethos of the Ling breed was about breeding females and, and not really focusing on bulls. And is it still, again, fair to say that that's the same today? Or has it evolved a little bit away from its original um, purpose? Yeah, well, 60% was the female, 40% was the steer. So that that's... That probably has been lost a bit um, as people have concentrated more on the on the female and maybe using a terminal sire or a continental sire over them. Mm-hmm. As that's been lost a bit, I think there's a natural progression in, in people's eye just towards a more muscular type of animal. Sure. And, and that certainly made its mark in the, the, in the, on the breed. If we move on... Um... I suppose through the 70s, we said the introduction of the Charolais as a terminal sire would play a, a big role in, in the Ling's future as a fattening beast and, and some of that detrimental. Uh, and it's well evident that the, the Ling breed is definitely all about the cows. But let's just take a look at some of those sires that influenced the breed in those first few decades, as we generally do on, on these podcasts. And uh, I've got a bull listed here as a Ling buzzard born in 1968 and sold at the 1970 sale. And some say he was the best traditional bull many have ever seen. And the Cadzos would have sold a lot of sons off him, uh, nearly being a lot of pedigrees, will he? Um, that's it's fairly well lost in time, some of that stuff. Okay. <laughs> I think Buzzard bred uh, a bull Quinchat. Um, that, uh, there was actually semen used in Quinchat. We used semen from him um, again in the 90s. Okay. And in fact, we have a great-grandson that we used as stock bull quite a bit lately. Okay. Um, um, but... Definitely, yeah. Buzzard had quite a big influence at the time, mm-hmm. yeah. And also Mon. Okay. So also um, Monny Donald Marl, and you mentioned uh, John Cameron earlier on at the Blair Athlon. He was out of a heifer that uh, he'd bought from Cadzo, and uh, I believe he was polled. Would he be the start of the polled breeding uh, scheme within the breed? Well, we think probably uh, Duncan Stewart at Mel Hills, short horns had yeah. uh, uh, would have sort of American. Pulled short horns with a bit more scouse and frame uh-huh. early on, and he also had uh, farms at Glen Lochy mm-hmm. that um, ended up as a John Cameron Balboothy farm, okay. um, and and Ben Hallam, and uh, you know some of the some of the 
original first cross heifers that would go to Ling would were from Glenlochy and Benham and you know so I think uh, these mill hill pools would be the the start of the the polling. Okay. But John Hammond at Manee, uh, certainly gets the credit for pulling these pulled cattle together and, uh, you know, giving the breed a great asset in today's world anyway. Okay. John Cameron at both Boothie mm-hmm. was also quite involved with the formation of the breed because his father's place would be would be a source of heifers at the start. Okay. And uh, Ling Major would be a little bit later and he was sold to Ronnie McLaughlin for 1,600 guineas, I believe, a fair trade. And then that was resold to, to yourselves, to your father. And uh, and your father showed him at the Highland, I believe, and, and a real breeder wherever he went. So let's just move back to the, the shows. The embargo obviously got lifted on the on the show scene round about then uh, um, for whatever reason. I think they showed for three years, 81 to 83, at the Highland Show. Okay. And uh, Dad was talking, well, he often talks about the, these, he said 13 senior bulls paraded wow. in the ring right in front of the old herdsman's bar uh-huh. at the 81 show. And um, these bulls were kind of rugged, deep-bodied, very masculine bulls, probably fairly working clothes, just ready to go out with cows. Uh, and 13 old bulls walking around that ring, all singing the Ling chorus. Uh-huh. The Ling bulls have this deep, quiet kind of growl that they, that they they sing to each other. <laughs> he said it made a huge mark uh, in a lot of people's minds just seeing these uh, this, this parade of bulls. And, uh, I think they thought it did a big, it gave the breed quite a big push at a time when they maybe were needing it. A big promotion job, as you said, when they needed it and a hell of a feat to pull that many bulls together, I'm sure. And I'd imagine your father was probably instrumental in, in behind gathering that uh, that lot up together. And, and the bulling major that I mentioned, uh, he went on and seemingly he, he bred for yourselves. I think he was sold on and went on somewhere else and again left a lot of a lot of good stock. I, quite a stamp of a bull major. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then another bull of yours, Dernin Montana and... Uh, uh, Another bull that stamped his mark, I suppose, into the 90s there. But he was, he was a different kind of bull. He was a lot bigger, wasn't he? Yeah, they were getting a bit bigger. I think they kind of, they were needing it a wee bit. You know, these, the steers in the early days were hanging up 18-month-old uh, grass-finished cattle at sort of 400 to 450 kilo live weight. Mm-hmm. So so things needed to, to change a bit. And uh, they just they just kept uh, just kept getting a wee bit bigger sure. and uh, trying to keep relevant, really, which was sort of... Fairly much in the in the in the cadres blueprint was to keep the breed a useful breed. Yeah. At that time, also you were probably looking at maybe only twenty to thirty herds and only a handful of bringing out bulls. So it was difficult for any sort of single bull to have a big impact um, because you if you sold sold the sun to everyone, you 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 pretty pretty quickly run out of options. To, yeah. Next. Sure. And as I said, the breed was very much about the cows and that's maybe some of these bulls aren't just quite so prevalent in, a, in amongst the breed as, as, the, as the cows themselves. And the breed numbers did decline in the 80s, as we said, and a, a few, still a few other um, herd size there. I think you mentioned to me was a hairhead Davy D bred by Neil Anderson. Uh, Neil? Yep, Davy D went on to breed a nunnery Harvey that went back to, to Hairhead. Um, these bulls had quite a big impact. Uh-huh. Um, another bull in the early nineties, I guess, was uh, was Ben Har Lomond, which sold to the Cadres, and uh, uh, he was used before he was sold. And Ben Har Peter, the following year, made a record price, which stood for fourteen years at six thousand two hundred. Wow. 
Yeah. And he also sold to, to Cadzos and was one of seven Loman sons that were all used in Ireland at one point. Really? And, and Ben-Ha Sunday you mentioned to me as well, which was kept by the McNeese and uh, his son, I think you said, was uh, Ben-Ha Zemin. Yeah, Zemin sold to Merkland and then went on to to um, to the to the bars after that. Uh-huh. Um, he, he breed, um, maybe didn't leave a great number of bulls that sold, but uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, top price heifers okay. at a time when when the breed wasn't expanding again. It was, his, a lot of Zemin females would be the start of a lot of. Um, New, of the new, herd. new herds and you mentioned the new herds of course the foot and mouth you mentioned earlier on some of these herds would get wiped out sadly as a lot of other breeds did and just purely by the location that they were there in that southwest of of scotland and um some of these herds would need to rebuild again in the millennium and uh neil give us a little bit more of sort of you know, the, the, of how that came back from the ashes uh, at that time people were thinking about biosecurity and closed herds and maybe thinking a bit more about cost of production and, and the link ticked a lot of boxes for that. Um, and I think probably, I think Wilbert Girvin at um, Buckham at that time, and he, he, had a, he had a column in the Farmers Weekly and would write monthly uh, about how uh, hard and easy kept and well suited these link cows were to the, the border hills. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, he, he banging on about that, and that would be a good promotion in, the, in just in about that time. And uh, there was a huge interest in the breed just after food. Yeah, so some of these hills, of course, were restocking, and and it would be a change of uh, a change of direction, and also a change of ownership in a lot of cases. I think you know, through some of the older ones had put the towel in, and the younger ones had start coming in back that time to uh, to start coming up with uh, with different ideas. I wouldn't say new ideas, but uh, different ideas. And uh, is there a few probably sheep cattle going cattle going on to maybe sheep ground as well? I guess. Mm-hmm. And are there a few other bulls that are just going pulling further forward before we move away from this uh, um, uh, influence-wise that that have um, stuck the, the neck out as amongst the breed in the last twenty years or so? Yeah, you need to mention Robert and Hazel uh, McNee at Finlarg. Um, Robert was brought up at Ben Har, but with the Ben Har herd, but they, they they split and went to to Finlarg, and Finlarg Nero went to Hare Head and. Um, uh, bred a lot of bulls that went into herds, mm-hmm. and then another bull that uh, Robert and Hazel brought was uh, Finlarg Tornado, who sold uh, seventeen thousand to Nunnery in twenty seventeen, and then he went on to breed Nunnery Zenon, who was is the current record price at twenty five thousand that sold to the Renix at Blackhouse. Okay, and you mentioned uh, Nunnery, of course, are well known to a lot of people as as blackie breeders as well, and a few of these blackie breeders uh, the, the 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 animals are suited to, or a similar type of breed to to a blackie, of course, and just a, a few of those other breeds you mentioned. Yes, Hazel and Robert McNee, of course, often in the headlines with uh, Finlarg herd, and uh, we'll all be looking forward to seeing a few of those when uh, Scott sheep is being held on their farm uh, later this year. Neil, and you're probably involved in that as well, I guess. It'll be a grand day out, and it's not just for sheep people. <laughs> First of June, yeah, just in time for the uh, Jubilee celebrations, and. Um, it will be a grand day. I think everybody's itching to get to, to 
to go into a farm and see some stock again. Looking forward to being there myself, uh, Neil, and I'm sure we'll have a, we'll maybe have time for a dram if we can. And uh, moving on, or should I say moving back a little bit to your father, Finney McGowan, a lot of people will remember him, me personally, for the, his prowess with the Simmentals, but it was his work with the Ling breed that actually took it forward. And what exactly was his role? He was field officer, I believe. Would that be right? What did that involve? Yeah, fieldsman. He took over from Ronnie McLaughlin, who had been the fieldsman for 25 years and had uh, taken, I mean, Ronnie's job was taking a, a float down to shows in Devon and the, the Royal Show and up to the Western Isles and all over the country, uh, demonstrating cattle um, with, a, with a tent and a gates and a bull and some cows and, and, and he did a huge amount of work that way, but also uh, coming round and inspecting the bulls prior to the sale, okay. uh, just to make sure that the, the bulls were of uh, the correct and the, type. And the, the measurements came in there too. With, um, your father took on that role, what year would that be? I think late 90s, um, when Ronnie retired, and, and uh, Dad did it for a while, and Charles Simmons now does that. Okay. And and when Dad was at that, we, he and Robert were quite instrumental in setting up the, uh, the 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 dam classification scheme. So now, when the fieldsman goes around the farms in the autumn, the bulls are inspected and uh, measured at the at the shoulder, and they get a scrotal me- measurement too. There's a minimum scrotal mm-hmm. of thirty-eight centimeters at the sale. Um, and the mothers are classified just for udder and teat uh, scores for feet and locomotion. Okay, every one of them. And yeah, the mother of the mother of all the bulls. Okay, each bull. So when you go to the sale, you have an idea that the the, the mother's been um, been inspected. Uh, somebody's seen it and we've given it a score. If if it b- falls below standard, uh, the bull's not allowed at the sale. So. Very, very much along the lines, of course, of a saying that the, the ling is a female breeder, so when you get a bull that uh, that you're going to take in, you're going to want to breed females, so therefore you're going to want to know what the mother looks like and, and, and how she performs, and that makes perfect, perfect sense. It was really bringing us back to to what uh, the cadres had done at the very start. Just go back and second check that mother's a good cow. Uh-huh. And, um, sure. If we can... Yeah, we've looked at uh, some other classification schemes that were a bit more scientifically um, proven, but um, the, the the outcome of this scheme is it, it's very simple to run, and it's uh, it eliminates the bad cows, and um, that mm. takes a good long way along the way if you can sure. stop. Um, help avoid some mistakes. Obviously, all you'll still use all the figures. Do you? I don't know. You, you use the figure system that everybody else uses, or not? I assume you do. Uh, there is a bit, yes. There's a, there's uh, about four herds that are uh, recording EBVs. Um, I think we're getting some more useful um, maternal figures, but uh, um, folk really uh, put quite a pay quite a lot of attention to the dam mm-hmm. classification. Sure. Okay. Uh, it gives a you, you get an idea of uh, the cow's um, calving interval as well, how many calves they've had, and um, it's all pretty useful. If you're, if you're trying to build that. Fairly straightforward data to record as well, and, and, and recording obviously each one in its own merits rather than comparing them all with each other, I suppose. But um, moving on through some of these, uh, the, the more modern breeders, I see Rory Bell is, is uh, well up there in the breed, and his father, of course, and your father would be responsible for getting my father into the Blue Domain Sheep a good few decades ago. The, it goes round, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> They've survived the Blue Domain sauce. <laughs> 
think uh, my father went on and won the Royal, the interbreed at the Royal Welsh Show with a sheep bred at uh, TV there of of uh, Robin Bell. So and, and Rory is, is is up there with the breed. I think a past chairman, as you know. Rory's quite involved with the breed. Yep, he's uh, got uh, again. Plenty Leith would be a good uh, good sheep hill farm. Uh, they would run a blackie stock, and uh, you know, like, like a lot of these blackie guys, the Grahams at Craig Darrick and the, the Kennedys at Mitchell Hill, and Alan Fold have a few links yeah, now too. Do, yeah. And that's before we start talking about the Cheviot folk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, if they've got a low hassle cow and uh, that are good hill grazers and, and improve the ground for sheep, the, uh, the ling fits well with these folk. Sure, it does. And we said there's a few blackie breeders in the I remember John uh, McGregor on this podcast uh, singing the merits of how you know, they do well to graze up there on the ground that the blackies, the blackies go on. So that's obviously where this breed has, has kept its feet very firmly on the ground, as we said, not just for the MacArthur's at Nunnery, but uh, um, a lot of these other blackie boys. And... Uh, Going the other direction, my pal John Scott at Fern is a keen breeder up there in, in uh, East of Ross, and uh, I think he has his own online sale now, and I think they suit some of that uh, that grounder up in Caithness as well. Yeah, I would probably start going up there as being able to help work ticks further up at Welbeck, maybe, and um, yeah, you and McCall's up there too, I guess. There's an up over in Orkney, there's a bit of... Uh, the lings are taking ground every bit too. You mentioned Welbeck. I'll briefly cut in. Interesting to see that they're in the breed. And my wife's grandfather, actually, John Murray, was the head gardener on the Duke of Portland's uh, estate, on Langwell Estate, for 50 years. So there's a bit of a family connection with uh, with Welbeck. We must go up there and have a have a look at, look at the cattle there one day. And if we go overseas, of course, a worldwide breed now. You mentioned Alberta. I've had a little bit of help research from uh, Ian Aitken, who moved from Castle Douglas to Manitoba in 2002 cows and all I think and uh, I spoke to him the other day and it was he was out feeding the cows and it was minus 40 degrees and that speaks volumes really this they really are a hardy breed aren't they Neil? Yeah I different across there too different conditions but they've adapted as well I think uh, Ian would end up with some of the the, the herd of uh, both Bob Church um, and and the Rothney herd of um, uh, Sandy Cross I think it was Sandy Cross okay. was, uh, and Lings they're We've a herd in uh, Tasmania, a few lings still in New Zealand, um, but they, they seem to be doing quite well in Switzerland. We have quite an interest in Switzerland. Okay. In the Alps again, I guess, and uh, yeah, that's good to, to see that they're going around, and I'm sure there'll be more more as time goes on when people are looking for an easier kept cow. And and, uh, and as well as your lings at Inchuk, uh, you've got a number of other appointments, Neil, which include a regular column or column in the... Scottish farmer, and how do the lings fit into your own family farming enterprise there? Ah, the, the lings have always been the bread and butter of our business, I think. They're, but and, and easy to work, easy fed, fertile, you know, long-lived suckler cow that is self-replacing and crosses well with a simmental that gives you a kind of added value heifer to sell. Mm-hmm. Or an Angus that we're doing, um, we've not put them to Charlie's, but other folk are and getting on fine. What numbers of lings uh, do you run there, the Pure? Uh, we run 160 okay. lings. Okay. Just about half of them are bred pure, and the rest either go to the Simmental to sell Simling in calf heifers mostly, and uh, some for the to the Angus, and uh, most of the, the heifers, or ling heifers, calve it two-year-old to an Angus. Okay. That'll be a, one of the bigger herds amongst the, amongst the breeders, or or are most of them sort of the, the, the herds that size these days. 
Uh, no, there's uh, there's quite a lot of big herds of cows. I think that's one of the strengths of the breed is that they're um, they're they're held in quite large herds. Average number of females per herd is eighty four. They're all in fairly commercially run herds. And I remember you as a past, you were saying about your father, but you as a past salesman and inspector for the Texel sheep breed, of course, a lot of people remember that. And and you were a pioneer of the clean breed, I think, particularly in Scotland. And uh, we probably won't have time to profile that breed on this in this particular series, but uh, you give our listener a, a brief outline of what the clean breed and, and the merits of those. And are they sort of a comparative breed to the Ling again? Yeah, I think they are. They're just Lings with wool, <laughs> but they're even harder to pronounce. <laughs> Bert Island, low input. I, I was really attracted to, when I travelled in New Zealand, to that sort of straight bed system of running mostly Romneys. And, and you know, you could pick the direction you wanted to go and you could call out difficulties. And you seemed to be, you sort of were in charge of your own destiny. And the, the stratified sheep system doesn't allow you to do that. But uh, the the Ling and the Klin, you know, they, they both... Uh, both fit that system you can you're in charge of what type you want to have yourself and again you'll run a lot of those pure what numbers of those do you keep with a thousand clean news to the top this time but a lot of them go to the, half of them go to the texel top for but again you, you know, you've, you've put your face behind it as you have with the links and, and stuck with the, the traditional breeds that uh, that suit your system and of course there is a resurgent in a lot of traditional breeds now both in the cattle and the sheep world and uh, but the links still that little bit a little bit different, is it not, as it always was? Is, 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 is the Ling breed on the up in the same way a lot of the other breeds are, are being more demanded for, for um, pure, or should I say, or, or close cross traditional beef? I think there's a fantastic interest in, in, in new herds, but um, from a lot of different sort of uh, perspectives as well, I think, you know, um, conservation grazing, yep. particularly some of the north of England's uh, grazing schemes, probably in the last few while. Um, but also um, places like Woodland Trust um, up here um, using using cows to, to help manage great trees, mm-hmm. really. Um, folk looking for easier fleshing and easier kind of better fertility cattle, maybe. And, and I think pr- just pressures on staff and, and, and calving ease and temperament and ease of management all, you know, it comes on that. Sure. Um, looking forward, I think the kind of climate change box gets ticked by looking at cattle that are probably a wee bit lower in cow size and uh, still fairly quick to finish you know sure. I, I know uh, having lived in East Lothian for a while I remember having some uh, pureling beef through the farm shop in Aberlady he did eat well I have to say it's uh, certainly it, yeah it, it's, it's not just a cow breed but there is some fantastic beef that still comes off a, off a ling beast yeah we're, we kill our own steers here we, we, well, we, we take our steers through to finishing, and uh, one or two we get one or two through the farm. Uh, sort of Debbie runs a put cattle through an online farm shop, mm-hmm. and um, the the lynx steer uh, that's uh, going through at the moment is uh, is uh, certainly. Uh, proven pretty popular. You're making me want my tea. And <laughs> and going back, I suppose, to those original ideals that uh, the, the link, uh, does it still cling to those original ideals about being that commercial female rather than you know, some of these fatted show bulls like, uh, like Cadzo originally said? Or are there, you think a few breeders are now in it more for, more for the money side of it? I think there's not a great demand for Ling bulls commercially. I think that's probably untapped a wee bit, but... Uh, which I don't think there's anybody really 
gone into lings to breed bulls okay. uh, to sell to other people. You know, it's it, the, the, the everybody's focus is very much on creating a commercial cow herd for themselves. So I think in that way, the, the breed is a wee bit different. Different and, and, and still sticking to Cadra's uh, original blueprint. And I think what a great blueprint it was. And uh, and uh, a fantastic breed that they are. And of course, uh, Neil, please say hello to your dad for me uh, when you when you next speak to him. And uh, really appreciated your time here on the Top Lines and Tales podcast and hearing about the, the country's newest traditional breed. And uh, hopefully we've all seen a little bit of uh, information, not only about the breed, but how, how smart some people are and how maybe how to understand how it is to create a breed from, from nothing. Um, Neil, thanks. Uh, awfully thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Keep it up. <laughs> All right. Cheers. We'll, uh, we'll catch you again. Maybe at Scott Sheep. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Harbro, for their continued support of the Top Lines and Tales podcast. And, uh, of course, they are manufacturers and suppliers of high-quality livestock nutrition as well as nutritional advice. And find them on, on their website for more information or follow them on Facebook. <laughs>